Welcome to An Abundant Future with Matt Powers. I'm your host, Matt Powers. And this is a podcast where we talk about what's possible in the regenerative space. What's coming down the pipe, what people are doing in their daily lives, what people are doing professionally, and what you can do now. Today I'm talking to Colleen Dick of Unchenda and State of Grace. We're talking about intentional communities, cooperatives. We're talking about creating food systems that actually serve farmers and their customers, that actually honors their health and health of their bioregion. So let's dive in and learn more. So let's just dive right in and start talking about these projects that are going so well for you. Uh, Onchenda, that's I'm pronouncing it correctly, right? That's correct. Onchenda, Open Global Food Cooperative. (laughs) Yeah, let's talk about that one. Because you have many we could talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they all kind of go together, you know, they all dovetail. So that's kind of how it goes. Yeah, it, um, it it's all about regenerative um, agriculture and regenerative life uh, methodologies um, to try to get to a place where human beings are really at home on their planet again. Um, we're really interested in all of the health aspects of what we're doing. That's what brought me to uh, this whole permaculture thing in the first place. So interested in um, the many people that I've met um, within the permaculture community, many of them came to it because of a health problem that they were having. And I I heard that story over and over and over again. And so it's just really kind of important to me um, to keep finding those things that are going to help the most people. And um, I started out on my journey kind of with my own health issues. And um, and it turned out that, uh, you know, I went to my doctor. He put me on some medications. I went home, took the pills, uh, about a week later, couldn't get out of bed. I was just aching all over. I thought I had the flu. So I called the doctor and I said, you know, I, I don't seem to really have any of the other symptoms that go with the flu, but I'm just aching all over. What is that? And um, he got back to me and he said, you know, those pills I gave you, Stop taking them. You're very sensitive to that medication and we're going to have to find a different solution for you. Well, as I continued to look for solutions to my my blood pressure and high cholesterol and all that kind of problems that people very often, you know, encounter in middle age in our society, I just found so many things. Um, and, and I think it's really kind of frightening to people when they all of a sudden they're confronted with their own lifestyle and what's not going well for it. Um, I mean, I'm a nutritionist. I thought I was eating well, you know. Um, I've I've kind of stayed away from sugar and all that kind of things all my life. But as I studied it more, I began to realize that our food supply is severely limited. Um, We think we've got a lot of variety we go to the store and we see all these different kinds of foods there but most of them are coming from a very long ways away I mean I've heard estimates that our food supply um, is coming from anywhere from 1500 miles up to 5,000 miles on average so we have a lot of different kinds of things that show up in our grocery stores but none of it is fresh Uh, A lot of it um, might have been kept in nitrogen stasis, which keeps the food from ripening any further, but it doesn't really do anything to promote the nutritional value of that food. And so I became very, very concerned. Uh, Okay, so if we can't really trust the grocery store for our food supply, what does that really mean for us? Yeah, that, that's really pretty frightening, I think, for most people. 
that have a health crisis and realize that their health crisis is being caused at least in part by their lifestyle and what they're putting in their mouths. And so what was really important to me at that point is to uh, drill down, find out, okay, I'll, I'll, all right, so I, I, I found a different doctor, first of all, okay. <laughs> Step number one, find a new doctor. <laughs> Step number two, drill down and find out what's really going on, what's causing the problem. Am I nutrient deficient? Am I eating things that are actually sort of poisoning me? <laughs> All of those uh, things are of concern, right? So um, uh, I, I began to do a lot of research in, uh, in the nutrition literature, actually. And I found that the nutritional research literature was probably uh, a decade to two decades ahead of where the medical profession is currently. They were talking all about the kinds of substances that are in foods that get there because they are grown in healthy soil. Now the healthy soil is, is a living entity. It's full of all kinds of little critters. <laughs> there's, there's bacteria and there's funguses and there's all kinds of little creepy crawly things, little worms and crustaceans and all kinds of uh, little insects and, and whatever. And all of them have some kind of role that they play together in the health of that soil. Um, some of them um, are providing nutrients directly to the plants that grow in them. And some of them are aerating the soil and some of them are uh, kind of um, breaking down um, items that um, otherwise would just kind of remain forever. Um, and so it's really important to recycle what we throw out there again, and these organisms are doing that for us. And so as I began to realize that food that's grown in healthy soil has much higher polyphenol levels. Now, a polyphenol is just a fancy name for chemicals that um, are protective for a plant and many of them are uh, very helpful to us as antioxidants and they, they kind of help us fight off diseases and they, they nurture the cells at a very elementary level. Mm. And so all those things are really pretty important. So I got thinking, okay, well, Healthy soil is good stuff, right? So we'll, we'll just go buy organic food and we'll all be fine, right? Well, organic food, at least currently, is a little bit expensive. And then when I started studying about the whole organic food movement, um, I realized that well-intentioned as it has always been, um, just the sheer for market forces, um, that are going toward it right now. People are wanting more and more organics um, because they're concerned about all of these other things that, you know, that their health and the well-being of the planet and other things. And so um, the definition of organic has eroded over time. And many of the organics are grown as monocultures, just one crop in a field. Um, just like the other standard crops are, and and so we're still we're still fighting the same problems. A nature will never support monocrop food production. It just won't do it. <laughs> so uh, we still have all the weeds that are invasive, and we have um, a soil biochemistry that's kind of a little bit out of whack because it doesn't have all of the kind of cooperation that goes on in the normal nature kind of setting. So anyway, that's, that's what I became very concerned about and uh, how do we do that? And uh, I was really fortunate to run into someone who told me about permaculture. And um, I'm just with, was thrilled about learning about it 
and uh, went to a permaculture um, convergence about three years ago um, that in, in Minnesota and met a lot of the wonderful people who are very um, instrumental in bringing all of this uh, wonderful design technology forward and who have built databases and other wonderful books and uh, things to help, uh, help this movement move forward. And um, so at that point in time, I was just like thrilled at the um, at the people that I was meeting, they were warm and inclusive and enthusiastic about what they were doing. I could just see a certain, um, a certain healthy uh, kind of uh, aspect to their personalities and their bodies. Uh, they just seemed radiant in a lot of ways, and that was really encouraging to me. And so I came home from that convergence thinking, okay, I have found the mother load. <laughs> We're here. We can do this. Yeah. <laughs> and then I began to realize there is not a really good economic engine to bring all of this forward right now. I mean, when you think about how old... How old is permaculture in our modern iteration? It's like 40, maybe 50 years if you go back to some of the, you know, the older folks in, involved. But how old is Microsoft? <laughs> are, are you getting what I'm saying here? I mean, everybody in the world knows about Microsoft. Why does not everyone in the world know about permaculture? Well, it, it's all about having an economic engine to drive that. And uh, what I've realized is our small to mid-sized farmers and gardeners and former culturists and all these people who are uh, really at the cutting edge of having healthy food available for the planet, they're all kind of struggling. It's a, an incredibly underserved community in terms of um, modern technologies and whatever. And because it's kind of a grassroots movement anyway, um, and, and we don't want to take away from that. I mean, that's an important aspect of, to it. But why not bring the best of of what's available through computer technologies and in terms of data gathering, in terms of just economic freedom and ease of movement of um, things in the financial sector. Why not do that and bring that engine uh, to permaculture and to the gardening and um, horticulture and farming communities? Um, and so that's kind of, um, that's kind of why we got so interested in doing this on Chenda, um, Open Global Food Cooperative. Um, and uh, I actually met Harrison online. Um, he was living in um, Harrison Quigley, by the way. He's the founder of On Chenda. And I met him um, online um, on LinkedIn. Um, he was living in Taiwan at the time and um, was just um, publishing page after page of wonderful, inspiring information about his idea about how we can help bring this wonderful economic engine into play for the sake of the small to mid-sized farms. And so, um, really excited about that. And uh, as we came to um, to have the the time to. Uh, to meet each other and to work on this uh, on this company, Anchenda is a Utah benefit corporation, and that means that we have a triple bottom line. We are concerned about people and planet and profits, kind of down the road there. <laughs> and and mostly what we want to do is provide profit to the people who are struggling um, to to make ends meet. I mean, most of our farmers have other jobs or their wives have other jobs 
or or whatever and so to try to create something that's going to to work for them um, becomes a really important thing to do um, so we we really would like to to help make farming a more sustainable kind of venture um, if farmers can thrive just on growing food can you imagine how wonderful that would be absolutely <laughs> I mean, incredible um, that would be just such a wonderful thing if they could just thrive by growing food and so that's kind of our um, our goal is to help that be uh, a distinct possibility um, and so it doesn't matter how big or how small you are if you you know if you have like six fruit trees in your backyard or something like that and you just got more than you can use you can open a little store on Anchenda and you can sell whatever you're not using um, to your friends and neighbors and um, and will help facilitate that whole process now for uh, maybe young and beginning farmers um, maybe they're just leasing their land maybe there's a an older family or whatever who um, doesn't want to utilize their land anymore so they're allowing a young family to lease that land well how, how do you make that work <laughs> it's not easy right <laughs> uh, a lot of them do um, community supported agriculture what we're what we're calling the CSA model and and that works for a lot of people but the problem with that is that most most people who are CSA members um, are getting boxes once a week and they don't get to choose what's in that box and so there's kind of a life history involved with CSAs. Usually the first year people are really excited with about that, you know, they're, they're excited about supporting their, their uh, local farms. And they, they feel like they're being a good guy by you know, being in support of this thing. And the second year their enthusiasm kind of gets a little less because they keep having things show up in that box that they really don't know what to do with it. <laughs> or, they, <laughs> or they just kind of don't like it all that much. <laughs> and so what, um, what we're suggesting is that if we have the ability to let the farmers, these young, young farmers set up their store and tell us all about their operations. Tell us about your family and your animals, and tell us about what you do put on your fields or your crops and what you don't, because that becomes a really important matter to people who have health considerations. They're very concerned that, um, that what they're getting from you um, does not have some of those pesticides or some of those things. They want to know um, that are very common. Um, and also, um, a lot of people are becoming more and more aware that their health has a lot to do with um, the sort of microorganisms that they have in their own digestive systems. And by eating healthy local food, you actually become one with your environment. That healthy local food that is really fresh is providing the right kind of bacterial flora for you. And then if you also do some fermenting, um, almost every long-term culture has some kind of, uh, you know, vegetable ferments of some kind or other, like um, kraut or um, there's, there's kind of a, a Korean um, version of that. And I can't remember the name of it right Kimchi. now. <laughs> There you go, kimchi. <laughs> um, but almost all cultures have, you know, cheeses or whatever that have natural bacterial flora. And those things help keep us healthy. And uh, so I think that that's, that's an important part of, of what we want to encourage to happen as well. I think so that's brilliant. Brilliant. Pardon me? I think that's brilliant to provide a menu so that people can 
exercise choice because that's the modality in which we operate with our food. We go and we pick from a menu. And yes. when I was leaving the Central Valley, farmers markets were just realizing that they could be all digital and farmers were realizing they could barter and offer their neighboring farms products on their own website and suddenly they could barter with their food and everyone could be trading and they could reach a ton more people. So yes. you had all this lateral stuff and all turning into menus, but this opens it up way past the landowners. This makes it so that people who are renters, people who are community gardens, people who um, who have orchards that are mm -hmm. small, like you said, that are small. This makes it so that it's decentralized and it's a model that can work anywhere. Yes, yes, and and that's that's really um, we're seeing that as we're doing uh, kind of an analysis of our competitors and people who are doing similar things to us. It's been really important um, to uh, to see you know how we can differentiate ourselves a little bit. So being able to shop from menus is actually part of that differentiation. Um, and uh, also uh, the fact that a lot of them are kind of content to stay small. Uh, you know, they've set it up for their cooperative in a certain location and they don't really care if it ever gets any bigger than that. But we're kind of taking a kind of a very large view of, of if we get all of these people in their locations um, to create these wonderful little cooperatives. And they can, they can create their own cooperatives using our platform as a basis of trying to get together and whatever. We don't want to manage their cooperatives. That's not what we're doing. We want them to have ownership of their own cooperatives. And um, we just will provide the tools to make it work better and, um, and help do a lot of the marketing for them. So if farmers don't have to spend a lot of time on those business applications, then they can spend more time growing food. And that's what we want to see happen. Now, if you replicate that across our, our nation, first of all, and then across the globe, we can eliminate a lot of the sources of poverty. Because as we connect ourselves with people who are wonderful designers, who can mentor other people, maybe just take a little percentage of their production capability um, going forward. Most um, permaculture designers are kind of doing one-offs. You know, they're, um, they're designing for a particular uh, land mass or a particular farm. And then once their design is implemented, then they're kind of done. But uh, most of the young or small farmers can't afford to spend the, the you know twelve to twenty-five thousand dollars to get that design initially done. But they do, you know, and and Unchenda wants to put some of its profit profits into a growers fund so that we can help these beginning growers get the hard costs covered. And then we can um, have mentors that come in and help them with their design processes and stay with them um, as needed over a period of time. And then these permaculture designers will have an ongoing source of income from the, the work that they've been doing rather than just getting kind of the one-off thing up, up at, the, at the beginning of the thing. So anyway, it, I think it just works better for everyone um, if, if we can cooperate in this manner. Um, a, a really good designer, a successful designer that, uh, that, their, that their plans uh, and their um, designs produce very well will, will make a good income uh, kind of on an ongoing basis from that. So it, it, it makes sense to do it that way. And I think that's where the future really is for permaculture. People having designs that they can point to, they're like, well, this design's making this much money per year. Mm -hmm. And we're not there yet. We only have a, a couple designs of farm level permaculture. 
and most of it's market gardening, which is, you know, it's just being able to do gardening without it being um, too detrimental, you know. But mm -hmm. uh, most of that is exporting the water and the nutrients, and then they have to constantly be bringing in new nutrients. Right. And, and that's kind of like a Judas shuffling. It's not really like they're diving deep, and that's why people turn to perennials um, yeah. and things like that. So this is a chance for people to get the mentorship they need to actually get the backing that they need to make these transitions because no one is making these transitions and permaculture in North America that I have seen is almost mm -hmm. unilaterally gardening taking yes. it to a next level with some perennials some cover crops some new techniques and stuff yes. like that um, it only in a few places do you see it really what we're talking about which is a farming culture using perennials and new techniques yes um, and we need to foster that we together all of us our communities our, our families us as individuals we all need to foster and support experimental farms that are trying all this stuff uh export right. organizations like onchenda and other parts of, of your your mission because they're going to foster and provide the, the capital for these things to actually go forward. You know, the government's not gonna do it. Um, and those poor farmers, they're in a, you know, they are uh, stuck uh, financially. So this, this is a window for people to go through. And it's, it's Well, not, not only are they stuck, but uh, they're competing against uh, a very large um, system that is being supported by taxpayer money. Um, a lot of these very large farms would not be profitable except for the, um, the money that they're receiving. Um, and let's uh, be honest, they're barely profitable. They're making $20 per acre on corn and soy. I mean, this is, this is like they are being, they're given just a little bit so mm -hmm. that they can go just a little further and they never catch up to their debts. They just yeah. barely hang on. So, so it's they're, really a sad situation. <laughs> oh, oh, they're sold to the company store. <laughs> yeah, they did. And, and we really shouldn't put our government in a position where it's picking, um, picking uh, winners and losers. No, and we shouldn't give no, them the opportunity to dictate our food. <laughs> yeah, they should. They, they shouldn't have to tell us what to eat. Though the FDA feels like they should at this point because we've given them so much um, allowance and people have turned to them so much instead of using their own common sense and, and research and all these things, uh, we're in a situation where there's a lot of things that shouldn't be. Exactly right. And, uh, you know, and they, and they try to hedge all their bets, you know. I mean, they're, they're putting a certain, you know, several million dollars every year into grants and whatever to help small and local farms, but uh, compared to the amount of money that's that's being kind of creamed off by these very large factory farms, um, it, it's pretty insubstantial. So anyway, uh, you know, and and I don't you know care too much about what your political persuasion is. Mo most of us just want to eat fresh food, right? Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> not political at all. <laughs> And, uh, and I think the big problem is that we have, in some cases, politicized it too much. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I would really like to, to, to kind of unbundle that. And oh, yeah. Realize that, you know, we're all in this together and uh, our political persuasions um, can, can do us some damage. <laughs> depend, and it doesn't really depend on what that persu persuasion is. Um, it, yeah, it's just the fact that politicizing have, it is not useful. They all have weaknesses. So, anyway. Um, so, where are we at with Onchenda? Are, are, are we getting ready to launch? How Are we gathering farmers? Have you picked a location? Well, our location is right here in the Wasatch Front uh, in, in the state of Utah for our beta. Um, we have identified our technology partner and they are just getting all ready to help us launch. 
Um, we have some funding that will be coming in in the next two weeks um, to help bring all of that forward, uh, which is really exciting for us. And um, and we're we're kind of building a virtual organization. We we don't want to have a great big top heavy company. Um, and so we're doing a lot of collaborating with other existing businesses. Mm. Uh, we want to collaborate with local delivery companies. We don't want to have to build all of that infrastructure ourselves. We want to just capitalize on what other people do really well and bring them into the fold. And so um, it, it won't be really uh, an unwieldy organization. It will stay small and uh, agile, and um, and that's important to us. So, um, and then each area will hopefully, you know, kind of build its own cooperatives around our platforms, and and we'll just kind of grow kind of quietly to begin with. And by the time we're big enough to be scary to the big guys, it's gonna be too late, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. We'll already be too big. <laughs> So anyway, we, uh, we're really excited. We are anticipating um, kind of beginning um, to put our farmers on uh, the platform in kind of the March to May um, of 2018 um, timeframe. And um, we're hoping that we'll get all the bugs out of it by August. <laughs> nice. <laughs> And then August through October, we're just hoping to take advantage of bring even more farmers on, um, maybe go to Denver and the, this wonderful area around Boulder, Colorado, um, beginning to meet people over there and um, maybe start spreading out to, to help them with their harvest things too. And um, so if we have a couple of locations um, say in Utah and, and Colorado by the end of 2018 we will feel successful and then 2019 we're just going to do tremendous amounts of marketing uh, to the um, farming community and also um, you know to the customer community as well and so um, and then we can just you know like have this wonderful wedding ceremony <laughs> <laughs> We see ourselves as matchmakers. <laughs> and so, you know, we get the people who are producing the food and the people who are eating the food together, and everybody's happy with that. Yeah. And, um, and so it's just something we can all celebrate. Um, at the same time, Harrison will be working on the Far East. Um, we'll get all of our data files and everything translated into Mandarin. <laughs> And um, then they can begin um, growing it out in um, southern parts of China and, and Taiwan. And, um, and then go into some of these areas where food security is a real issue. Um, and just kind of start small, um, get our designers in there, you know, get, get those, um, the, the land um, productive again, uh, you know, bring in uh, all of our friends that are doing these large scale uh, kind of projects and everything around the world, um, help them to become um, profitable to a certain degree so that their communities that they're spending so much time um, building uh, can really thrive. And um, so as that goes forward and, and people can see that it's working, um, then we're hoping that it'll just kind of grow organically. Um, and uh, by word of mouth and that, uh, you know, as, as we get kind of critical masses in each area that we'll do massive um, marketing campaigns and whatever. Our, our biggest concern uh, the thing that scares us the most right now is keeping our growth balanced because if we have too many farmers and not enough customers, the farmers will get bored and they'll stop checking their emails and stuff and, and we don't want that. But if we get too many customers and not enough farmers, then the customers 
customers will get bored. <laughs> so, well, you've got to keep this thing balanced as it grows out. And so if there's anyone out there... Waiting list. <laughs> waiting list will be the key for you. You'll have a farmer's waiting list, and then you'll have a, um, a eater waiting list, you know, <laughs> customer waiting list. And, that's probably a good idea. <laughs> and then you can make sure you control the release of each so that they stay matched. Sounds great. <laughs> so we'll, we'll put you to work, Matt. You can help <laughs> do that. <laughs> so anyway, that's, that's kind of, um, you know, probably our biggest scary thing that we're concerned about right now. <laughs> okay. Well, that sounds awesome. I can't wait to see this roll out. And are you free to talk about any of your other things that you have coming up? Well, yeah. I mean, eventually, uh, we're hoping that Unchanda will be this just astounding success. And, uh, and we already have kind of a way to utilize the, the success of, of that venture and be able to... Um, leverage it um, into just the whole sustainable lifestyle type of thing. So we also have another um, Utah Benefit Corporation that's called State of Grace Living. And I have to tell you, this is the thing that my heart longs for more than anything else. <laughs> this is a sustainable, regenerative community of the future, a prototype community of the future, where we have all those wonderful regenerative technologies. So right now they're kind of laying around here and there and everywhere. And people are saying, well, what would it look like if you put it all together yeah. and you built an entire community about that? So please go to our website. It's just, um, it's www. Um, dot State of Grace Living, and I think, let's see, how did I do that? It's stateofgrace-living.org. So it's www.stateofgrace-living.org. Um, so anyway, come there, and we also have a, a really active fa Facebook page for State of Grace. Um, so feel free to come and like our page. Um, we would love to have you um, uh, contribute your ideas and whatever as well. And so um, let us know if, if you would be interested in coming together with us to help create that kind of a community. Um, so anyway. Um, yeah, so, what's, <laughs> so I know that our listeners are pretty savvy. And, they're, and their minds are like, oh, an eco-village model. Yeah. And I know that, that there's a conversation here about uh, co-ops and about mm -hmm. eco-villages and about success rates. And yes. I know that you've already thought about this, you've already addressed it in your planning, and I want to address that elephant in the room for all those listeners out there who are like, oh, eco-village becomes ego-village, you know what I mean? <laughs> It does, and part of the problem is that most eco-villages are lifestyle communities. And a lifestyle is something that can be pretty individualized. People want to make their own choices about a lifestyle. Um, and, uh, and, and they really resent it if someone else is telling them what their lifestyle should be. <laughs> And so how we are seeing this is that instead of being a lifestyle community, this is a production cooperative. Now, if you want to find a production cooperative that you could go and look at right now to see how it works, you can go to the Mondragon communities in Spain. Mondragon has been kind of, uh, it's been alive now for, well, since just after World War II. Um, the Mondragon communities came out of the Basque area of Spain where the people were very poor. They were on the wrong side politically. Um, and so Franco had a tendency to punish them. 
and they were really having a hard time surviving. There was, I believe it was a Roman Catholic priest who stood up and said, we can do this. We can come together as a community and we can create um, a production cooperative that will allow us all to prosper. And so we see State of Grace Living as being a production cooperative. Instead of having each person who uh, lives there own their own private land, um, every person that will live there will actually own a part of the means of production. So you own a part of the company, not just your house. Now, if you want to leave, um, you can take you know, what's been stored up for you and um, and you can uh, kind of um, see how that works by studying the Mondragon communities. But you can actually leave the cooperative. You can take your money um, and go somewhere else and do something else if you want. Um, and just the fact that you have uh, put all the time and energy uh, into the production of this system um, will help. You know, will help it um, thrive. And we're hoping that we're building the kind of um, community that is very vibrant. Um, we've talked to other eco-villages and whatever and asked them what is hard and what is easy. Um, I was in Scotland not too, uh, too many years ago and we had a chance to go to a kind of a world-renowned um, eco-village there kind of in the northern highlands of Scotland uh, called Findhorn. And, and the Findhorn community has been an educational community for many, many years. Um, and so we ask, uh, you know, what's hard about it? And of course, the people were really honest with us. They said, well, human relations is really hard <laughs> because everyone has a very a different view and a, a sense in their own heads of what this thing should be. Um, but the thing that had made Findhorn successful was this kind of never-ending flow of people that were coming through their system. They had people who would come in and learn and then go forth and, um, and, and then bring what they had learned to their own communities worldwide. And, uh, and it made a difference. And this is what a 70 year old community or something now. I think it was uh, spawned somewhere in the uh, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, something like that, anyway. So they've been going for a period of time. They're at least 50 years old. And, um, uh, and, and, it's, and it's, it's kind of an interesting place to be and to, to see what the struggles are and what, what's working and what's not and, and everything. But I, I learned a great deal that when people are contributing something out of their hearts, it makes a community great. And so we want to um, encourage people who are artisans and um, uh, who, who understand basic skills to come into our community um, because those basic skills can be put to work in a lot of, a lot of ways. We have multiple sources of income that we're envisioning. At the heart of the community, we would like to see us build a permaculture research um, institution and a teaching institution. If we learned anything from Findhorn, it's that never-ending flow of people through a community that helps keep it vibrant. And um, so we're really interested in that. Um, we also are very interested in the in health um, health skills. Maybe we could invite someone um, to create a um, kind of a holistic um, medicine component to what we're teaching and learning there. Um, we would 
maybe even some kind of a naturopathic school of some kind or other. Um, but we would like to uh, utilize the natural foods that grow there um, in kind of some unique ways, perhaps. Um, have kind of our own health food uh, division, uh, maybe cosmetics, things that can be made from the botanicals that grow there. Um, there's a lot of um, a, a lot of teaching that can go on within this community. We can have um, permaculture courses of various different kinds. Um, but ones that take it beyond just the, the normal PDC kind of thing. Right. We have a research institution there as well. Um, but uh, there's just a lot of things that can go on in a community like that um, where people are coming together um, to produce. And so it's actually a production cooperative, not a lifestyle cooperative that we're trying to build. And um, a lot of times, I, where I kind of came up with this idea is when um, I came back from a permaculture um, convergence in uh, Minnesota about four years ago. Um, I came back and everyone said, we need a large scale uh, site that we can take people to. and. Um, the, most of the permaculture sites are pretty small. Now, since that time, we have some of these really large-scale kind of eco-village, but beyond that kind of thing that's going on, um, we've got um, kind of the wonderful work that um, is happening with Dan Halsey and uh, over in the Altiplano of Spain uh, right now. Um, why is it so much good stuff is coming out of Spain, guys? <laughs> uh, maybe because my wife wants us to go back there. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so the, there's a lot of things, and, you know, there's all the wonderful work that's been done in, in the deserts, um, and I'm, I'm really awful when it comes to names. I should have all these names on the tip of my tongue. But there's wonderful things going on in the deserts, there's wonderful things that are happening with water harvesting and all kinds of uh, interesting stuff. Um, uh, creating villages that are kind of uh, energy self-sufficient, either through wind or solar or geothermal or some combination of the above. And um, so what we'd like to do is these state of grace communities that I envision um, would just bring all kinds of those regenerative technologies together. And so that, uh, you know, we can start out with one. I've, I've found a place down in Cedar City, Utah, that I think would be perfect. So if anybody out there wants to help me do this, and please contact me and we'll, we'll get our heads and our money together and make it happen. But, um, there's a wonderful area there um, that you know we could do geothermal. We could uh, we could do all kinds of, of different energy modalities to help power that community. Um, it's you know it's kind of oriented correctly to the sun, which is wonderful when that happens. <laughs> um, so you don't have to to fight any of that. Um, and so if if we could bring that bring a, one of these state of grace communities together just kind of down there by Cedar City. The other thing that's kind of interesting about that location is that between Cedar City and St. George there is a huge drop of elevation and there's all those ecological niches between those two areas. So if you kind of carved out like a 40 to 60 mile a kind of um, circle there you could you could find all kinds of different ecological niches and honestly I think people could very well survive autonomously in those areas um, and so it would be a great place to establish a community that can really uh, be an educational focal point 
for the world. Um, it's not the most hospitable climate, <laughs> but if you can do it there, you can do it anywhere. <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> and uh, I have had to laugh. People will go out there and they'll look at that and they just say, you want to put a village there? <laughs> and I said, absolutely. This soil is amazing stuff if you just get enough um, you know, enough humic acid <laughs> involved in it. But if if we can bring in enough um, organic material, that that area would just be amazing. So um, it's just it's just a way, you know, to kind of think of the future in um, in very positive terms um, without without so much of the fear that a lot of people have about what the future might look like for us. Um, one thing I really love about you, Matt, is your optimism. And uh, you're such an upbeat person and so hopeful. And, um, you know, we could just multiply all of that uh, exponentially across the planet. You can just see how much we could accomplish. Oh, and that would you. just be so great. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. You're welcome. <laughs> so, well, what do we, you think? <laughs> yeah, I think yes. I mean, if we could all have your interconnected iterative vision, people would be like, oh, well, I see how this connects to that and how all mm -hmm. these things cycle together, even in human and natural systems. And yep. then if they could actually see the iteration, and most people don't know what iteration means, but to iterate something is to say it again in a new way. Yeah. And so what we're doing is theme and variation is another way to put it. Um, yeah. But what you way you're building up, you're like, well, we're gonna keep this part and it's going to lead into this part and support it and then lead into this part. And it's the way our knowledge works actually and our learning works. And exactly. And so it's like you're educating the public as you're getting them to reach towards a goal that's greater than your initial offering. And exactly. most, yeah, and most people don't don't know, don't get that, don't have that on their radar. They can't plan it, can't think about it because they've never encountered it, never seen it. So exactly. it's just wonderful that you're doing this and you're making it so public and transparent that everyone can go, hey, you know, <laughs> maybe with my business. I should roll it out like this and then it should expand into this and then expand into that. And then they go with sure footing as they scale up their business piece by piece. Exactly. Well, and it's, you know, it's, it's a matter that uh, the most successful entrepreneurs and the most um, successful people who are community leaders and um, they're people who um, aren't very rigid, you know. They're willing to really learn from other people. They're willing to take on difficult tasks and bring people together to brainstorm about solving those problems that may arise. Um, I just, we have just found that um, I mean, we're, we're starting, you know, basically with nothing financially and, uh, you know, the, the founders uh, sort of tanked back in that horrible recession of, uh, what was it, 2008, nine, something like that. And we've just become very, um, very good at making a lot out of nothing. <laughs> All right. <laughs> And so, um, by bringing people together uh, and uh, taking care of that human capital, um, uh, the greatest thing that we have going for us is what's between our ears. You know, just our 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 thoughts and our um, plans and how we incorporate uh, other people into those things and. Um, you know, if we can bring our best thinking to the world problems um, without having to worry too much about um, 
what's already happening out there. I, I think a, a lot of the negativity that we experience is when we look at the world and, and the problems that are there, and, uh, and we just feel overwhelmed by it. And, but it's not necessary to feel overwhelmed because the solutions are actually really simple, mm. and they're right at home for us. So if we can do what we need to do right in our own home communities um, and build those communities up in cooperative kinds of ways, then there's no end to what we can accomplish. And uh, sometimes it's, it's just better to turn a blind eye to some of the negative influences in our world and just get yourself so focused on what you can do and uh, what your own influence is capable of. And by coming together as groups of people, like in the, in the permaculture communities, um, also in, um, I mean, some, some people uh, don't understand what that means and, and they're a little suspicious and whatever, and then there's the, the group of academics who don't really want to use the word because it's kind of got a lot of baggage, so. They call it agroecology, and that's fine. We can use that word, too. <laughs> so if we don't get too stuck on, on semantics, there's just no end to the good that we can do. And just a, just a quick story. I have a wonderful friend who lives out in, I think, Kansas or Nebraska, something like that. Um, and when I first met him, he was really pretty negative about the whole idea of uh, growing things in more natural ways, but he he was reasonable enough to reach out to some people who were talking about cover crops. So I thought, okay, well that's that's not going to be too expensive for me to do cover crops. So I'm going to start doing cover crops. I'm going to stop tilling my land. I'm going to start doing cover crops, and then of course the cover crop. Uh, Thing, uh, gave his land some kind of new fertility and he thought you know I'm going to try different kinds of corn um, I'm going to try different kinds of other uh, other uh, seeds and whatever I'm, I'm going to try some kind of heritage seeds and stuff and so now some three years later he is just so much more productive than he ever was before and he was actually a subsistence farmer. And now he's got three different crops every year that he's doing, and now he's bringing in all kinds of other things. He's lowered all of his inputs cost. He's no longer using GMO seeds. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, and his land is, is recovering. And he's so excited. And I see him posting all these wonderful things on land, or online now, about um, you know how much more productive. And instead of having one crop, he's got three. Um, now he's kind of uh, carving up his land, and he's doing other kinds of things with parts of it, kind of returning it to a more um, balanced ecosystem. Wow. So it can be done. And, and this was a guy who was calling me all kinds of names three years ago. But just because he was willing to open his mind and his heart a little bit, he is so much more prosperous today. Wow. And so, you know, these things happen. And uh, so we have every reason to be optimistic. And I'm, I really want to salute you. Uh, for what you're doing. I've kind of watched you right from the beginning and it's been so fun to watch it all grow. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Colleen. Yeah, I had such a great time uh, in Utah staying at your home with my son. It was, uh, it was also amazing, you know, you lined up some amazing places for me to speak and mm -hmm. had some great audiences that were really eager to, to hear the message that I brought. Uh, it is a pleasure to know you. And I love talking to you about all this stuff. And hopefully we can have you back again when these things launch. And we can hear about, yeah, and we can hear about more aspects on that wheel. And the audience can't see it, but I can. Um, there's a whole, she's got a whole web 
of interconnecting businesses, nonprofit organizations, and movements and cultural things. It's really awesome. So yeah. we'll we'll dive further into this and we'll keep exploring as we we keep celebrating all these wins that we keep having towards a more regenerative world. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and your energy. <laughs> it's, it's just wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Colleen. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that.